You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. In season one, I told you about my wife's cookie business, Sweet Life Cookies, and I have decided to keep her as a sponsor for season two. You need to buy some cookies from Sweet Life Cookies. Uh, Original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, white chocolate macadamia nut. Uh, She's even added an M&M variety, which is very popular with kids, as you know. Um, Half dozens or dozens can be shipped anywhere in in the United States. Uh, if you're in the Middle Tennessee area, specifically if you're in the Nashville area, you can get the cookie trays, three dozen size, six dozen size. Uh, that will meet all your office and party needs. Go to mysweetlifecookies.com to place an order, or if you're interested in a tray, there's contact information there where you can give her the information about your get-together. Delivery is available in a limited range as well. So go to mysweetlifecookies.com, check everything out. They are the best cookies in the world, and I ain't lying. Kevin Gannon, a.k.a. The Tattooed Prof, is a professor of history and the director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Grand View University in Des Moines, Iowa. He earned a Ph.D. in history from the University of South Carolina. He has authored several articles and chapters on the Civil War and Reconstruction eras and publishes regularly on U.S. history, pedagogy, and higher education. He contributed the chapter, A Case Study in Medieval History, for the book The Flipped College Classroom, Gannon is a nationally recognized speaker on race and U.S. history, pedagogy and higher education, and justice and inclusion. Kevin Gannon, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. So uh, you are the tattooed professor. That's the word on the street, yes. That is the word. And you self-identify, dude. That's your, that's your Twitter handle. Right. <laughs> well, so, the, the procrastinating and behind-on-deadline professor was already taken, so I had to go with A and B. So, uh, so, uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. You're, you're a professor at a college, but you're not like at, you know, Harvard or Princeton or something. So who are you and what do you do? Well, I teach at a school called Grandview University. Uh, I would like to go on record as saying we are the Harvard of the east side of Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, We are a a small private Lutheran affiliated institution of about 1800 students. Um, I serve as a professor of history. I've been here about 15 years. Uh, my main gig right now is I direct our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. So That's I'm on awesome. the faculty, but a, a large part of what I do is administrative and faculty development. So I run a teaching center. I work with all of my colleagues, faculty and staff on anything from individual class pedagogy all the way up to kind of institutional planning about better teaching and learning and student success. So it's a great gig. I really enjoy it. That's really cool. So, so, uh, for the people who aren't looking at you live on Skype, which is everybody except me, um, (laughs) you, you really are the tattooed professor. You got sleeves and gloves. What's the story there? So I started getting tattooed actually after my freshman year of undergrad. Um, so that would have been the summer of 1991. And, uh, you know, so it wasn't as common in college then as it was now. So there were definitely a few raised eyebrows. And, you know, it was something I'd wanted to do for a while. I had a couple buddies who, who were heavily tattooed. Um, I worked in a warehouse, you know, yeah, so it kind yeah. of came to territory. And, and um, you know, one of them knew a good artist, and there we went. And, uh, you know, they say they're addictive. And I know in my case, you know, we're about halfway through the first one on my right arm, and I'm already thinking about the design for the second one. And, <laughs> You know, however many years later, here we are. So, yeah, I'm fully sleeved, upper chest, uh, hands, knuckles. Uh, although the hands and knuckles came after I got tenure, I should probably 
should probably be specific about that. I don't know if it would have made a difference here. It might at some institutions, but but yeah, when I was on the job market, I was uh, you know long sleeves and a blazer for those first encounters. Oh with yeah, that. yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so um, we're going to be talking about uh, racism today. This is uh, kind of you mentioned to me uh, when I first contacted you. Hey, do you know anybody that can talk about this? And you're like, well, I can talk about this. Yeah. Uh, how did this become uh, an area of interest in your studies and and uh, as far as your history major and your, your pursuit and eventual PhD, how did this become like, this is an area I need to focus on? So, you know, as I zeroed in on U.S. history kind of in the last few years of undergrad and was really making plans on going to grad school and looking at programs and thinking about areas of study, you know, it's I've been an 18th, 19th century U.S. guy um, is my training in Latin American history as well. Yeah. And I think if you study U.S. history, uh, you can't not study race and racism, right? Mm -hmm. It's baked into the cake. Uh, and, you know, I wrote my dissertation um, on actually states' rights and secessionism in the North before the Civil War, uh, which, you know, those were tools deployed by groups far different than those that you saw using them in the South. Yeah. Uh, and, and many, and one of the most intriguing groups that I studied were radical abolitionists mm -hmm. uh, who argued for a, a separation from the sinfulness of slavery. And getting into, you know, that sort of, you know, those sorts of groups and those sorts of arguments, um, just, you know, re you can't not do that, I think, and not reckon with the way that race and racism have shaped the history of this country. And then, of course, you know, being situated in the present, uh, doing a Ph.D. at the University of South Carolina in the late 90s and early 2000s when it still flew the Confederate flag over the state capitol, two yeah. blocks from campus. And, you know, it's just it was everywhere. So, you know, I was like, you know, to me, we're, you know, we were fish swimming in this water and now it was my job to try to describe that water. Uh, so that's since then, you know, I've, I've stayed kind of in those areas. But as I've moved more into teaching and learning, um, you know, race shapes a lot of the inequities that we reckon with in education. Mm -hmm. uh, there are important things that we need to reckon with in terms of race and inclusion in higher education. Uh, and so for me, that's been a real interesting convergence. And I think a really, you know, an intellectually fruitful one, but also one that I think is very fulfilling. I think it's, you know, we need to be talking and talking about these things, working with these things. And those of us with platforms to try to do something about it, I think have an ethical obligation to do so. So um, historically, almost everybody's aware that the South had uh, some small issues regarding race. Uh, I'm from, yeah, that was the thing. I, yeah, I was, I was born in, in, uh, the very lowest part in, geographically of Alabama. So Dothan, which is like really far mm -hmm. South. And I was raised on the South side of Atlanta. I lived on the Northeast side. Now I live in Tennessee. So I've never lived uh, as a resident, not even one minute of my life outside of the South. So, you know, Stone Mountain, the whole nine yards, uh, I've known everything about, uh, the South's going to rise again since I was old enough to know anything. Um, and a lot of people do, and, and a lot of people in America, their their idea of the worst racism seems to be uh, focused on the South and slavery and the Civil War and all those things. Uh, but the reality is, is that racism has been an issue nationally for a long, long time. Uh, so I want to explore some of that today, not in any way to alleviate the sins of the South, as if you know there's a way to do that. Uh, but to talk about a little bit the unknown parts, like are you're familiar, I'm sure, with that really famous picture of the with the Jesus Saves banner and the the Klan and the Red Riders, I think, are the mm -hmm. other group that's there. So that was in Oregon, uh, and, right. and and I think Oregon was at one time, you know, like 
semi-incorporated or whatever is a white enclave, something along that line. Oh, yeah. It's the state constitution forbids uh, settlement by black people. So there you go. That's not racist 18, at all. 1846. <laughs> yeah. So talk about baked into the cake. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then even during the Civil War, there were race riots in like, I think, New York and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, black people were murdered in that. So so talk a little bit about uh, from go as far back as you feel like you need to go and work your way through uh, some of the other areas of the United States, uh, not including the South. So I think I'll preface this by saying, you know, a little bit about me personally. I was born in Texas. Uh, My dad was an Air Force officer. I've lived in Oklahoma. I've lived in Virginia. I did my graduate, uh, my Ph.D. at South Carolina. Uh, I've taught in Texas. I've lived in Florida. You know, I've lived across the South. I've also lived in other areas of the country and internationally as well. And, you know, I tell people partly for shock value, but also partly because it's true, the area of the country that I've lived in where I personally observed, and, you know, again, this is, I'm a white male, so my perspective is is going to be shaped by that, but where I saw the most toxic and venomous racism, you know, just expressed, you know, with that sort of dripping sport was Boston. Mm. So, you know, and again, that's, your results may vary, but but and I that's was also tra- the home, that's also the home of a very famous photograph, correct me if I'm wrong. Right. Of uh, uh, the, the debate over busing and the uh, demonstration in Copley, I think it's Copley Square, where there's a, a white man running towards an African-American yes. man with an American flag. Yes. Used yes. Like a steer. Yeah. Yes. And so and I think that goes to the busing debate of the 70s is a great way, I think, for us to sort of you know look at that. This is a national issue. Yeah. Right. I think. I think there's a lot of people who might have vested interests in saying that, oh, well, you know, the South is where our race problems happen. Mm-hmm. And if it weren't for the South, there wouldn't be racism. Right. I, I mean, not only is that inaccurate, I just I think that that's an off ramp for yeah. people who don't want to have those conversations or do the kind of self work or look around their immediate environs. Um, you know, racism and anti-black racism in particular in the South may look different and have a, you know, somewhat of a different historical narrative, but different doesn't mean either better or worse. Sure. I think we get in trouble when we start talking about, you know, who's more racist than who, because <laughs> you're right. It's, it's, it's the national dimensions of this. Yeah. And, you know, a race, racism is a white problem and there are whites, you know, a white problem in the sense that, without this vision of whiteness that people want, that white people want to protect and uphold and and keep other people from enjoying the benefits of, without that, there is no racism, right? So there are white people all over the country. There's whiteness all over the country. Therefore, there is racism all over the country. And that's as true even before there was the United States as it is today. So um, last year, I, I read some books on the Civil War, which makes me an expert. Um, sure. <laughs> I'm ready to argue with anybody now. Uh, and one of the one of the books that I read um, considered the attitudes of the northern so- soldiers and the southern soldiers, and what they thought the war was about. Mm-hmm. And which changes over the course that's of the correct, war. That's too, correct. That's right? correct, and it's it, that's actually brought out in the book. Um, so it's not a long book, but it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that's evident early on is that the northern soldiers were not not racist. They were racist. Most of them were racist. Right. They, they didn't want to be fighting this battle. They didn't care about black people. They didn't want any of this other. Um, how did, how did the, how did the North avoid uh, becoming the South legally, even if their attitudes were really, really close, if not essentially the same? Mm-hmm. Are you talking post-Civil War South, like 
why wasn't there a Jim Crow North kind of thing? Uh, that, that plus how did uh, how did the how did the abolitionist how how did the abolitionist become effective or if it was the abolitionists mm-hmm. that kept slavery from intruding into the North um, when it was quote unquote uh, successful in the South? So after the American Revolution, you know, every new American state in this country had slavery and had slaves residing in it, as well as most of them were home to a smaller but still significant free black community. Mm-hmm. But what you see, you know, the revolution is this sort of contradictory tangle of things. You know, whose revolution was it depends largely on who you ask, right? And so there is this current of, you know, what we would call radical revolutionary ide- ideology, this sort of, you know, very libertarian in the literal sense of the term uh, of, you know, ideal of how can we be establishing independence and creating a state founded on individual liberty when we're denying that to people in our midst. Mm-hmm. Now, that is an argument that gets a lot more traction in places where the institution of slavery doesn't hold the economic importance uh, that it does in the staple crop colonies right. slash states of the South, right? right? And so what you see is coming out of the revolution, you see you know, what's, what some historians have called the first emancipation. And so it's a wave of either immediate or gradual abolition of slavery, basically from Pennsylvania on north. Mm-hmm. You know, some state, you know, Vermont comes into the Union as, you know, its, it's first state constitution in 1777 prohibits slavery. Uh, Massachusetts is a result of the famous Quack Walker case uh, where the state Supreme Court basically agrees with the uh, the argument of an enslaved person suing for freedom that, you know, hey, the slavery is incompatible with the principles of our state constitution, right. which is the supreme law of the state. Right. So therefore, it's got to go. Right. And so that logic is out there. Um, other states, New York and Pennsylvania, um, and that gradual abolition. Mm. Uh, so it takes uh, in the case of New York until the 1820s. Uh, in New Jersey, you know, there's gradual emancipation, but there are still a, a handful, statistically speaking, of enslaved people in New Jersey by 1860. Um, so it's for a variety of reasons, uh, economic, uh, ideological and others, you know, slavery becomes more and more of a southern thing. But I think that the key element in trying to figure out that sectional difference is, you know, the staple crop agricultural system, mm-hmm. you know, that. In seventeen in the seventeen nineties, with the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney, all of a sudden it becomes really profitable and really easy to grow short staple cotton right. uh, across most of the environment of the South. And you know, the only thing that had been bottlenecking that procedure was figuring out how to get the seeds out of the cotton bowls. Mm-hmm. And once the cotton gin does that, you can grow you can grow short staple cotton pretty much anywhere in the South, especially the Piedmont regions. And you know, enslaved labor is what grows cotton. And yeah. once cotton comes a southern crop and enormous amounts of money are to be made from it, that entrenches slavery in a way that we don't see an analog for in the northern or in increasingly the western states. So now that doesn't mean that these these states aren't, you know, born out of the same sort of racist ideologies mm-hmm. that allow for the existence of slavery. Um, there are some who say, you know, this is a great moral thing that we should be abolishing slavery for, but it's not everybody's buying into that right. argument. <laughs> right. and one could be, one could be anti-slavery in American history and still not like black people. And I think that's, you know, so Ohio uh, enters the union in 1803 with a state constitution that says no black people can settle in this state. Or if you do decide to settle and you're you're African or African American, you have to pay a two hundred and fifty dollar bond for good behavior, and you got to be out within a year. Wow! Right, 
And and that pattern, Illinois does it, uh, Iowa does it, Oregon does it. So as you march west, in many ways, the, the process of westward expansion was a Jim Crow, uh, to borrow the term from later, a Jim mm-hmm. Crow process. It was segregated. So, so uh, it's a yes. more complicated picture, right? So it's not a, not at all surprising that uh, so many of the slaves that escaped from the south via the Underground Railroad just went on up to Canada and settled rather than uh, settling in the north. Right. You've got swaths of the north that, and most of them characterized by kind of, you know, the, the real radical uh, social leveling of evangelical Protestantism, he said, uh, in the Great <laughs> Awakening. Um, and so like upstate New York, the so-called burned over district, uh, places in Massachusetts, um, Vermont, New Hampshire, these are areas where there are pockets and communities that are, uh, you know, sort of living out the principles of at least racial accommodation, if not full quality or full throat of the quality. Northern Ohio is 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 another area. Uh, but in many ways, those are the exceptions rather than the rule in the North. Absolutely. You're listening to Uncommentary with Marty Duran, and my guest today is Kevin Gannon, and we'll be back right after this. So here are three ways that you can support Uncommentary. If you'd like to give a one-time gift of support, go to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. And you can do that there one time for as little as a buck. So uh, take the opportunity to do that. If you'd like to become a patron and be on a monthly donation, you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary. And for as little as $2 a month, you can be a regular patron for Uncommentary. There's some gift levels there with some stickers and mugs and feel free to choose the one that best suits your budget. The third way is by using my Amazon shop. So that's amazon.com slash shop slash Marty Duran. Amazon.com slash shop slash Marty Duran. Most of the books from the authors that I have interviewed are there as well as some that I just recommend for your reading pleasure. Uh, You get the same low Amazon price and it generates a commission to me which helps support Uncommentary. So I hope you'll take advantage of one of these three because I couldn't do it without you. Now back to this episode of Uncommentary. All right, we're back with Kevin Gannon uh, talking about race in the United States outside of the South. So you mentioned uh, right before the break the uh, the states that had basically incorporated white only into their state constitutions, um, moving out toward the West. Now we're all familiar with the movies, uh, the Westerns where you've got a, you know, a lone black family who has staked out their, you know, their claim and then they're inevitably run out of town or, uh, join up with, you know, uh, Kevin Costner, uh, and right. save the town. Um, what was it like for uh, for black folks that escaped the the South or that left the North into the Western migration? Uh, if they were going into you know areas, territories, eventually states that were like, no, you can't even come here unless you pay rent just for showing up. Mm-hmm. Well, in a lot of cases, you know, people of color avoided those states uh, or found areas well outside the pale of settlement where, you know, maybe the land wasn't desirable or desirable. Right. Um, What you see after the civil war um, is a mass exodus of African-Americans from the immediate post-war South fleeing, you know, they're refugees, they're fleeing terrorism. Um, And about half a million uh, moved to areas of large, uh, it's, uh, Nell Irvin Painter calls it the exodusters, mm. right? And so there's this sense of, you know, but it's a migration, not just into Northern urban areas, uh, and the far West coast, uh, but even the sort of typical homesteading narrative that whites would be participating in, but it's completely segregated. 
Uh, and so there's entire towns in places like Kansas that are black towns mm -hmm. because that's the only recourse, right? There's a few in Iowa. There's a mining community called Buxton, Iowa, uh, that was settled entirely by African-Americans because the traditional avenues that were provided by the Homestead Act and, you know, basically welfare for white settlers were not open to African-Americans. So population movement and migration on the part of African-Americans is, is a really significant demographic phenomenon in the U.S. starting after the Civil War, intensifying during the years of World War One and World War Two even. Uh, but it's always been a thing that's shaped not just by those migrating themselves, but by the larger conditions and the limitations uh, in which they're migrating. Um, one of the most horrific uh, riots that that I remember from American history that involved race took place in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, I guess technically Oklahoma is considered the South. I don't, I don't really know. They never were considered the South by me, brother, cause I'm from Georgia. Right. <laughs> so, you know, they're the Midwest. I don't care what they call themselves. Um, but there was a horrific, uh, race riot in Tulsa there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 1921, yeah. Uh, that uh, that's almost forgotten. Uh, and in fact, I've got friends in Oklahoma and I think I think this is correct that the Tulsa race riots weren't even taught in Oklahoma history until about a year and a half or 2 years ago. There are a lot of places where I think that's true, yeah. So uh so what what was that about? I've heard that it was called uh, the area was called Black Wall Street. It was very prosperous mm -hmm. um and, and then what what led to that? What what happened there? Uh, go into as much or as little detail as you need, but it was a big deal. Right. So, you know, the general story is, so there's this district of Tulsa, you know, the, the black neighborhood, the so-called Black Wall Street. It is. It's a very prosperous community, the black community in Tulsa, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and I'm not expert enough to speak to all of them, mm -hmm. but for a variety of reasons is, is fairly numerous, uh, fairly significant, but also, you know, segregated, uh, but has done really well for itself. Like there's a level of prosperity. There's a self-contained professional class. Um, it is, uh, you know, in many ways, an embodiment of, you know, African-American resourcefulness and grit and all of those things that, that, you know, people hold up as, you know, values we want to cultivate. Right. 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 But, for, you know, in the years immediately after World War One into the early 20s or a time of enormous anti-immigrant, anti-black xenophobia uh, in the United States. Um, this is the period that we see the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. uh, and, into, and it's worth pointing out that the Klan is a national phenomenon right. in, in the 1920s version. Um, they tap into some really powerful impulses of, of evangelical Protestantism and uh, fundamentalism. Uh, that are very powerful in most rural areas of the country. Uh, Kelly Baker wrote a great book called The Gospel According to the Klan, which oh, studies this where, you know, how, how those, you know, it's a very, you know, it's it's synergy, right? Yeah, it's, yeah sure, sure. It's social impulses that are animated. And, and the Klan is not just anti-black, but anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, anti-Jew. Right. They march in Washington. The governor of Indiana is in the Klan. You know, this is everywhere, Right. Um, a young Warren Harding uh, was in the Klan in Ohio as he began his uh, uh, his political career, uh, and he's president in right. 1921. Right, so so these impulses, you know, are you know we can see them in Tulsa. You know, the the sharpest edges of that racism, nativism, anti-black. You know, and it becomes honed against you know combined with local circumstances against the black community. And what happens, and you know we. I, I know that that race riot is the phrase that we often use. Um, I think 
we can think about it. You know, we talk about anti-Jewish pogroms in, in Eastern Europe. Right, right. Uh, or purges, right? That's what this is okay. in Tulsa. Uh, it is it, it is an effort to completely wipe out an entire community that is different from the majority. So it's it's a pogrom. It's 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 the same kind of stuff that's sending refugees to the United States and other areas of Western Europe today. Uh, and it's the same kind of thing that, you know, people were leaving Germany for or Eastern Europe for throughout the early 20th century. That's what's happening in Tulsa. Uh, and, you know, it, the death toll is enormous, the destruction, the economic devastation, the scars that it leaves. It, it's a horrific event. And it's and as you mentioned, it's silenced. Mm. Um, it's there are only, you know, certainly not in the African-American community, but in terms of white mainstream, you know, curriculum yeah. and the way yeah. that, you know, school children learn history. And when we do state history in the fourth grade and things like that, sure. Sure. you know, that was it was buried and buried deep. Uh, and, and to me, what that does is just intensify the damage. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's talk for a second about um, lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the estimates are anywhere from five to seven thousand people uh, were lynched in the United States. Not all African American, but predominantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of folks may not realize that a lot of lynching took place outside of the South. Uh, now, certainly, it was like way out of control in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the pictures that you see uh, that you can just easily search archival type materials um, are not in the South, not the deep South. Let me say it that way. Right. They're not in the deep South. Um, how is it that you know Oregon and Washington and Kansas and all these states where lynchings, where there's documented evidence and it was the same type of thing. It was the grotesque. Uh, inviting people, having a picnic and a party and, you know, making postcards and all that just awful stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet people think about lynching and they think about Mississippi. Uh, You know, how is it that the other areas of the nation have escaped uh, the stain of that behavior? Uh, Surely the amount is one factor, but I mean, it took place other places in the United States. Mm -hmm. Why does nobody talk about it? So I think there's probably a couple answers to that question. Um, you know, lynching does, you know, anti-black lynching in particular, you know, comes out of the the Civil War and Reconstruction era. And I think that because it's a regional practice that eventually goes national, mm-hmm. it's, you know, we still focus on the region where it starts, right? And that we see that, you know, this, it may not, it's not something different so much as it is something expanded, right? Sure. So local going national. And I think that's part of it. Um, I think one of the other things that, you know, as I mentioned before, it's, it's really easy to take an off ramp if you live in Oregon and say, we're not the deep South, so we don't have racism. Uh, and you know, I have a brother who lives in Portland and, you know, and, and I've been to Portland a lot. I have friends in, in the region as well, you know, native Oregonian friends and, you know, both white people and people of color. And, you know, this is an area that still struggles with whiteness and race today, even in a, in a self-styled progressive city, um, you know, homelessness and housing and the legacy of redlining. And these things are, you know, really tangled pieces of the story that, that in many ways Portland still has to reckon with or is in the process of. So if you live there, for example, and this makes you uncomfortable and you're white, you can say, well, you know, we're not Mississippi. Yeah. Right. You know, we're not Virginia. And, you know, it's because that's where the real racism is. Wow. Right. You know, and that's and that's it's it's a dodge. But part of it's psychological. Right. You know, white people and I am a white person, so I think I can, you know, speak for at least, you know, what it's like to, to sort of be identified as such. It's, you know, 
it's nobody likes to to reckon with stuff that makes them feel bad. Right. Right. We don't like that. And and it's a natural impulse to try to avoid it. But something like race and races where you have this horrific violence, you know, like I said, the, the, the macabre and completely just bonkers idea of, hey, let's all pose for a nice group picnic photo in our Sunday best, you yeah, know, yeah. with a, a charred corpse yeah. in the back. Right. Like, I mean, what the hell is that? Uh, it's so, it's so insane that, I mean, if you saw it in a movie, you'd think, oh, that's just dumb. But right. it's real. I mean, it was real life. And there are, you know, like you said, there are postcards made. Yeah. This stuff is everywhere. It, it, it ain't hard to find. And so could you imagine like, hey, I'm going to write a postcard to, to you know, Uncle Tim. And, yep. <laughs> I know. And, and so to reckon with that today where, you know, it's one thing to say, look, I personally was not involved in any lynchings. Right. But I know that I am the product of a system of whiteness that created that phenomenon. Mm. And that I don't like to sit with that truth. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have to, but I don't like it. Um, you know, I don't like violence. I'm very squeamish. I, you know, I, I have a lot of trouble reckoning with a lot of the things that I study, to be quite honest, yeah, because yeah. because it's a visceral reaction against it for me. Um, You're so squeamish. So you feed this, your you feed your dogs anything and everything they want just so that they don't get upset with you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> And it's so, you know, to do that kind of work and to, to, to sort of reckon with, okay, I live in a society with these structures that are still here. Right. Which, you know, we say we're past that, but are we? Yeah. Right. And so all sorts of un, very uncomfortable questions come up and the impulse to avoid that, to deflect it, to do all the stuff that I might do if I was a kid caught in trouble. Oh, no, Johnny did worse. Right. right you know, right. All the stuff, you know, the what about ism and all of that. You know, those are the impulses that we see. And I think they're the product of, you know, and I think that's why we we so often focus on the South when we talk about race and racisms, because for folks not in the South, that's the way to deflect. That's the way to say, well, what about this, right? Yeah. You mentioned redlining, which would be a whole episode by itself, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another instance of um, institutional racism, outside i mean that took place in the south but also outside the south i mean oh yeah it's pretty much every major urban area in the country um you can go oh it's one of the university of richmond or virginia pause just pause just one second and give a a really quick definition uh, explanation what redlining is for anybody who doesn't know okay so redlining was the practice uh mostly seen in the early 20th century where literal red lines were drawn on a map in terms of home lending mm-hmm. uh, homeowner financing and um, insurance uh and of course the neighborhoods demarcated with the red lines were you know will lend you know these are the quote-unquote bad neighborhoods yeah. right um and so this is where black people will be able to get money for a mortgage but not in these other areas yeah. and so it's you know it's it's basically bank mandated housing segregation um and so what you can actually do there's i wish i could remember who there's a it's called mapping inequality it's a website um and it's 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 a project i think of one of the universities in virginia um and as a graduate of james madison university in virginia i should remember this so i apologize <laughs> but but you can you can find these maps, the Federal Homeowners Corporation maps yeah. that are literal redlining maps, and you can pull them up. So there's redlining maps for Des Moines, Iowa, where I live now. Um, you know, when I when I give talks about this, I show redlining maps of Chicago and Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. actually. And you can look at those maps. Like if you're from Chicago or you know Chicago, you can look at the maps from the 19 teens and 20s and look at Chicago today and they explain so much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, the famous article by Ta-Nehisi Coates, the case for reparations 
is where, you know, he talks a lot about redlining and that's where I think it kind of re-entered the public discourse a little bit, but he talks a lot about it, Chicago as a case study for that. And that's an article I think, you know, any educated person should read and reckon with because it does, I think, so effectively get into this idea of the ways that we see institutional racism create these kind of structures of inequality. And redlining is one of the biggest examples. And the ways that we don't see it, though it's already happened. Exactly. And then if we don't see it or if we choose not to see it, we can't reckon with it. And then if we can't reckon with it, we we imagine that the problems that we have today sort of came out of a vacuum, right? We lack a historical memory of them. And so we have no solutions, right? Uh, we, we have no way to talk about solutions because we haven't even really reckoned with the dimensions of the problem. That's true. That's true. My guest today on Uncommentary has been Professor Ken, Kevin Gannon, the tattooed professor. Where can people find you online? Uh, all over the place. I yell on the internet a lot. So, <laughs> so I'm on Twitter at the tattooed prof. Uh, I maintain my own uh, blog slash website, uh, thetattooedprof.com. Um, those are the two main places. Um, so, you know, I'm on I'm on Twitter probably entirely too much, but I do post a lot of dog pictures, so it kind of balances out the yelling a little bit. So, yeah, come say hi online. So now, so I did not know when I asked you to do this that uh, that your college is a Lutheran college. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I wasn't aware of that. So, are you Lutheran too? I am not. Okay. All right. so I, I told I tell people I was raised Catholic, but I gave it up for Lent when yeah. I was fourteen. So, <laughs> so I, I attend a, a UCC congregation now, but I would describe myself as sort of Buddhist. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it's but uh, Buddhist. You know, <laughs> we you know the the Lutheran affiliation. You know, it, it's a big deal for our school because of the ethnicity. Yeah. Um, we were founded by Danish Lutherans on a folk school model, okay. which was a in the early 19th century is a very democratizing access oriented model. And that's remained a strong part of our ethos. And I really appreciate that. You know, so I think that cultural tie is important to us. Now we're not drawing in students because we're Lutheran and then all these other things. Um, But you know, in the upper Midwest, you can't, you can't go very far without tripping over a Scandinavian Lutheran school. So (laughs) we're just, we're the Danish variety. You know, our mascot is the Vikings, like a thousand other, you know, Uh, but it's, you know, but there are a lot of times associated with these sort of very, you know, distinct ethnic traditions of the late 19th century of, you know, there's the Germans and the Norwegians and the Danes. And, you know, this was the Danish neighborhood of Des Moines uh, and, wow. and the college sits in the middle. So it's kind of a neat thing to and especially now, you know, our largest student population is Roman Catholic. Lutherans are only third on the list. Wow. And one of the fastest growing groups of students by religious affiliation is Bosnian Muslims. Because Iowa has resettled refugees yeah, since yeah. the era, and so we a lot of Bosnians came to us in the mid '90s, and their children are college age now. Well, you said resettled refugees since the Vietnam era. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. That's yep. really so. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Governor Robert Ray, Iowa and Minnesota are two big refugee resettlement states. So I knew Minnesota was. I did not know yep. Iowa was. Yep. Oh, Iowa's yes. yeah. Vietnamese, Cambodian, um, we have a, a big Bosnian community, and now Rwandan and Sudanese uh, communities as well. That's amazing. Kevin, thanks so much for yeah. joining me. Hey, it was great to be with you. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, Mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or a review system, if you'd take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate, and 
about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. If you'd like to become a patron for as little as two bucks a month, swag level three bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash uncommentary. That's patreon.com slash uncommentary. Now, if you'd like to advertise, and I can always use advertisers, then email me, martyduran at yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duran. Follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod, and tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria.